Bibles this evening, please, to Isaiah chapter 53. The book of Isaiah chapter 53. By the way, congratulations, 40 years. 40 years. Now, don't hold this against me. I'm a Baptist. (laughs) Don't start throwing eggs and tomatoes now. The average stay for a Baptist preacher is about three and a half years, they tell me. You ain't a Baptist. Oh, 40 years. Hallelujah. What a record. What a record. I appreciate this great church. Now, do I have to look at that guy while I preach? That guy out there on that screen? Uh, he's a handsome dude, but I'm not sure I want to hear him preach. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53. The book of Isaiah is the longest prophetic book in the Bible. It's the most prophetic book in the entire Old Testament. And it reaches farther into the future than any other Old Testament prophet does. Isaiah is quoted by New Testament writers more than any other Old Testament writer, or prophet at least. In fact, I think I'm probably safe in saying that Isaiah is quoted more by New Testament writers than all other Old Testament prophets combined. And uh, I'm going to read tonight the entire chapter of 53. It's only 12 verses. If you're able to, would you stand with me, please, in reverence to the public reading of the Word of God. And this is written about 750 years before it came to pass. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of a dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Before I read verse number 6, I'll tell you a little story. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, um, years ago, obviously, was, uh, was boarding a train in London, England to leave behind one meeting and go to another meeting that he was preaching. And as he boarded the train, a man came running down the boardwalk, the platform, crying out, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, I heard you preach last night and I want to get saved. Tell me how to be saved. I want to get saved. Well, the train was taking off. He didn't have time to open his Bible and, and uh, you know, show him the plan of salvation. So he hollered back. He said, go home. Look up Isaiah 53. Go to verse 6. He said, go in at the first all. Come out of the last all. And you'll be saved. Amen. So he went home and he looked it up. He went in at the first stall. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he went out of the last stall and the man got saved. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. 
yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Amen. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. That's the resurrection. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Amen. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and it was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now don't close your Bibles. Bow with me, please. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for Calvary. Can't thank you enough. Thank you for this place, this dear man of God and his wonderful people. I pray, oh God, your continued showers of blessing upon them and upon their labors here. Pray that you would have your will done in every heart tonight in this preaching time. And oh God, if there is one here tonight who's not 100% sure for a Bible reason, if they died, they'd go to heaven. I pray that you'd help that one to realize and see and sense and even feel his or her need. Be willing to turn to you and trust you and be saved. Even tonight before it's too late. Challenge our hearts. And may we leave this place tonight different for having been here in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Uh, the book of Isaiah has often been called the little Bible. I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, and as for this reason, there are 66 books in the Bible. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. The first 39 books in the Bible are primarily the history of Israel. first 39 chapters of Isaiah are primarily the history of Israel. Little prophecy makes it. The last 27 books of the Bible are primarily about the life and ministry and death of Jesus Christ. The last 27 chapters of Isaiah prophetically are primarily about the life, death, and uh, ministry of Jesus Christ. The last 27 uh, books in the Bible begin with a brief description of the uh, ministry of John the Baptist and they end with a beautiful, awe-inspiring description of the new Jerusalem, the holy city where we'll live forever. And likewise, the book of Isaiah, the last 27 chapters, begins chapter 40. First three verses with a prophecy of the ministry of John the Baptist and ends uh, from chapter 65, verse 17 through 66 with an awesome description of eternity, the new Jerusalem and the, the, the new earth. So the Bible, for, for that reason, Isaiah is often called the little Bible. Now listen to me carefully. 
I want to preach tonight, the Lord willing, on the seven last sayings of Jesus Christ on the cross. There are seven things recorded for us that Jesus said while he was on the cross. He might have said more, but we know of seven. And I'm going to preach on all seven of those tonight, the Lord willing. So preach, that's going to take a long time. Don't worry about it. We'll have you out of here in time for breakfast, I promise you. Uh, when Jesus died, he died a natural death. Uh, by natural, I mean this. Jesus Christ did not faint for our sins. He died for our sins. Jesus Christ did not swoon for our sins. He died for our sins. Jesus Christ did not lapse into a comatose state for our sins. He died for our sins. Jesus Christ did not collapse for our sins. He willfully, on purpose, died for our sins. When he died... His brain waves went flat. His heart stopped beating. His pulse quit. If it had any, any blood left in his body, then it sank to the lowest gravitational point. He died a very natural death. Natural physical death. However, he also died a very unnatural death. And I say that for this reason. The Bible says uh, uh, that the wages of sin is death. That all have sinned and therefore sin, death passed, passed upon all men. Yeah. The Bible says sin, when it is finished, produces death. Amen. However, Jesus did no sin. Amen. All, of his, all of his friends testified to that. All of his foes testified to that. Judas, Pilate, Mrs. Pilate, even the devils of hell called him the Holy One. I'm saying, neighbor, uh, nobody, it's no wonder that he could look his enemies in the eye and say, which of you convinces me of sin? Amen. The Bible even says that he had innocent blood. Yes. I don't know how to explain that. Maybe your pastor does. But I believe it. Amen. His blood was innocent. Yes. The Bible says in him was no sin. Amen. Then why did he die? Died for yours. Right. And he died for mine. Yeah. He died in our place. Uh, it's not only correct to say Jesus Christ died for me. It's also correct to say Jesus Christ died as me. He died in your place. So his death was natural. His death was unnatural. However, his death was also, and here's a big word. Preachers have to pull out a big word once in a while just to impress the audience. <laughs> he died a preternatural death. Say, so what is that? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means that his death was planned and a done deal before the foundation of the world. The Bible calls him the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Do you know what that means? That means that Long time before Genesis 1 1. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in essence, sat down around the eternal conference table. And they looked down in, in the, from eternity past into time. They knew that man whom they would create would fall into sin. That's right. They knew that there would be only one way. 
for that man to be redeemed and that would be for a sinless bloody sacrifice to be made. Jesus Christ stood up and he said, Father, I'll go. And from that moment on, as far as God the Father was concerned, it was a done deal. It wasn't any future thing. It was a past tense done deal. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. However, his death was also a supernatural death. So preacher, I ain't got to the seven things yet. Well, just hush, I'll get there soon. (laughs) Here's what I mean by a supernatural death. Do you realize that God had a hand in Jesus' death? The Bible says in our text, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Says in Isaiah 53 that he was smitten of God, stricken by God, afflicted by God. God had a hand in his death. However, there's a sense also in which the devil had a hand in his death. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when man had sinned, God was pronouncing a curse on the earth, on woman, and on man, and on Satan. That's right. God said to the devil, You will bruise the heel. That's Old Testament language for inflict a temporary wound. You will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Now, wait a minute. The woman doesn't bear the seed. The man does. Why did did God say, why did he call his son prophetically the seed of the woman? Virgin birth. Say, preacher, I don't know if I believe in the virgin birth or not. Well, don't get me started. That's not my topic. Unless you want to stay till breakfast. I really, be honest with you, I don't know why it should be thought impossible for a virgin birth. Do you realize God has created man four ways? God created Adam without a man or a woman. God created Eve using a man, but not a woman. God created you and me using both a man and a woman. Why should it be thought a thing incredible that God could create a body for Jesus Christ using a woman but not using a man? If I were in a liberal church and I don't go to those, I'd say, put that in your pipe and smoke it. God had a part in Jesus' death. Satan had a part in Jesus' death. Man had a hand in Jesus' death. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood and preached to that massive crowd and told them some of them were there and had driven the nails in Jesus' hand just 50 days ago, uh, 53 days ago. And uh, Peter told them, by your wicked hands, you have crucified and slain the Son of God. So God had a hand in it. Satan had a hand in it. Man had a hand in it. But in reality, nobody killed Jesus. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, I'll lay down my life of my own accord. And he said, when I'm ready, I'll pick it up again. Thank God it only took him three days to get ready. And he picked it up again. I'm saying, neighbor, he, he died a supernatural death. I've often wondered, I don't know if you wonder much, but I, I wonder a lot. Why our Lord had it planned 
that Jesus Christ should die on a skull-shaped hill between two common low-life thieves, convicted criminals. I mean, he's the son of God. Why couldn't he die in a palace? Or at least in a hospital? Why on a skull-shaped hill between two common thieves? Well, you can conjecture all you want to. It might be the reason being that he wanted to show our, uh, that, that, that uh, his position as our substitute. Right. He was dying for sinners. Sin. It was only proper that he should die with sinners. Yeah. Maybe, just maybe, he died between two things to dramatize the only two possible responses to the gospel. Yes. Yes. One said yes. And the other said, no, there is no in between. What a dramatization. We could come up with a lot of guesses. I am thoroughly convinced, Pastor, that God planned it that way because 4,000 years before, way before 4,000 years before, God knew that there would be a lost sinner whose heart would be tender. But that lost sinner would be a convicted criminal and have to die. And he, he, he thought to himself, maybe, if I could just get a soul winner near him, that one can be saved. Amen. And so he put the greatest soul winner that ever lived right. on the cross right next to him. Amen. And he, I don't know if that's the reason or not. I, I kind of think it is. If you don't believe that, Well, you've been wrong before. I wouldn't worry about it. Just leave me alone. I'm enjoying my ignorance. At nine o'clock on crucifixion day, they laid the cross, nine o'clock in the morning, they laid the cross flat on the ground. They laid our Savior on that cross with his hands out and his feet extended down. They were driving the nails, nine o'clock in the morning through his hands and his feet. And as they were driving the nails, our Lord prayed a prayer. He prayed three prayers on the cross. The first saying, the fourth or middle saying, and the last saying were a prayer. While they were driving the nails, our Lord cried out, Father, and notice he called God Father. Forgive them. They don't know. They they know not what they do. Now, a neighbor of the Bible says, had they known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So I don't know about you, but I'm going to thank God for ignorance on their part. But notice our Lord, you study the life of our Lord, you'll find it was literally soaked, inundated with prayer. It was the earmark of his earthly life. When Jesus first started into the ministry at the age of 30, he, he, um, had to choose. He knew he was going to, he knew he wasn't going to be around long, and he needed to choose a small team of men to carry on the work after he was gone. Had he not done that, the church movement would have fizzled out in a hurry. But before choosing those twelve men, the Bible says he spent all night long in prayer, seeking the wisdom of God the Father before making that decision. I ask you a question. 
If the Son of God, I'm talking about God the Son, if he had to spend all night long in prayer before making a decision, seeking the wisdom of the Father, what in the world makes you and me think we can make decisions without saturating them in prayer? Amen. If you study the life of Jesus, you'll find that uh, when he prayed for his persecutors, he was merely giving a living example of what he'd already taught the apostles. He had taught them in Matthew chapter 5, you're to pray for your enemies. You're to bless those that curse you and that persecute you. Now, as they persecute him, as they nail him to the cross, he begs God to forgive them. Up until now, every single time in the life of Jesus, that sin was in his presence and forgiveness was in order, he always did the forgiving himself. However, now he has become your sin and mine. He did not become a sinner, but he did become sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He can't forgive sin now. So he asked the Father to do it. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Then they took that cross and they lifted it up. They dug a hole, prepared it to anchor the cross and they lifted the cross up and dropped it into that hole. And don't you know that the flesh in his hands and his nail tore without breaking a bone, by the way. They dropped him into that hole. And he, he, he hung there in the daylight hours, in the morning hours. It wasn't very long after that that all of a sudden the two thieves, one on this side and one on that side, be, began to berate Jesus. Why don't you get us out of this mess if you're the son of God? Get us down. And then after a period of silence, one of them got to thinking. Boy, this is the son of God. This is Jesus. When the other thief started to berate Jesus again, this other one on the other side stuck up for Jesus. And he told that man, hey, you and I are getting just exactly what we deserved. Isn't that amazing? He believed in capital punishment. And then he looked up at the sign above the head of Jesus on the cross. And he prayed. And he said, Lord, he believed in the deity of Christ. Remember me. He was humble. When thou comest, he believed in the second coming. Into thy kingdom, he believed in the sovereignty of the Savior. And Jesus turned to that one and made this statement today. Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now I said to your neighbor that everywhere Jesus turned during his life, Especially during his adult life, he was looking for a sinner to whom he could point to God. And now here he is on the cross dying for you and me. He's purchasing redemption for the entire human race from Adam to the last man that will ever live. 
And in the midst of that important work, he runs into a soul who's tender. And so he puts on the brakes, pulls the entire redemption bus over to the side of the road for a moment so he can stop and win this man to God. Amen. If soul winning meant that much to him, how could you and I go month after month and year after year, never having pointed one sinner to Jesus Christ without hanging our heads? Amen. Jesus Christ was a soul winner. And then a little later on that morning, Jesus looked down at his cross and is going to exemplify now a great moment of tenderness of heart. He saw at his feet his biological mother, Mary, a few other ladies, and there with them was John, John the Apostle. John had forsaken Jesus the night before, and he's the first, with the other, with the other apostles, and he's the first one now to return to Jesus' side. Peter is there, but Peter's hiding amongst the crowd, warming himself with the devil's fire. Jesus looks down at Mary and he addresses her and says to her concerning himself, Woman, behold thy son. That's a fulfillment of prophecy in Luke chapter 2. And then, in a moment of time, he turned to John. And he said to John regarding his mother, John, behold thy mother. Now, wait a minute. Mary was not the mother of John. Why did Jesus say, John, behold thy mother? For this reason. Jesus is about to pass off the scene. Joseph is gone. There's no record of Joseph anywhere since Luke chapter 2, Jesus being 12 years old in the temple. We're led to believe that he probably died a premature death, but he's gone. Jesus' own brothers, half-brothers or half-sisters, they're not saved yet. None of them got saved until after the resurrection. And Mary, his mama, is getting to be an old lady. So Jesus looks down and in essence he says to John, John, I'm about to check out of here. Joseph is nowhere around. My brothers and sisters ain't fit. Mama, she's getting old. Take her home. Treat her like your mama the rest of her life. And so he did. And I don't know if you can see it or not. But notice the wisdom of Jesus Christ in that. Why didn't he choose Peter? Peter could have learned gracious speech from Mary. Why why didn't he choose Thomas for that job? Thomas needed some strengthening of his faith. He could have got that from Mary. Why didn't he choose John? Well, John the Apostle wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the Revelation. What would better prepare John to be the revelator I'm talking about Revelation, which is all about the glory of Jesus Christ in his second advent. What could better prepare John to be the revelator 
and to get to take home the mother of Jesus Christ and pick her brain. Can you? I don't know if you've got a sanctified imagination or not. I do. Amen. Can you imagine her sitting at the fireplace and every evening? I mean, let's face it. Not that many old folks in here, but when, when, we, when you get old, we re- like to reminisce, don't we, preacher? <laughs> we like to reminisce. Old people reminisce. John would sit at the feet of Jesus Christ, of, of Mary, rather, maybe in front of the hearth, and begin to pick her brain. Hey, I'm talking about Mary, the mother. I'm talking about the one who, who bore him in her womb for nine months. I'm talking about the one who went through the rigorous process of childbirth to bring the Son of God into the world. I'm talking about the one who nursed him, changed his diapers, trained him, taught him, raised him, brought him up. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if anybody knew about the Son of God, she did. John now gets to take her home and treat her like his mama. And I can can just imagine it. Every evening, no doubt he'd sit at her feet and just pick her brain, ask questions, listen to the stories. Can you see the wisdom of the Son of God in that? Not only that, I'll tell you what else I see. I see this and my daughter and son-in-law are here, so I might preach on this a long time. Jesus saw to it that the, his elderly were taken care of. That's right. That's right. I was preaching, I'm going to, just hold your horses. Uh, I was preaching on a subject, well, very similar to that one time in our church, and after the service, I was standing down over here talking to five or six men, and, and uh, my daughter came to the crowd. She'll say she don't remember this, but she does. She came to the crowd and she said, Dad, don't worry. We are going to take care of you. We already have your reservation at the nursing home. She has the gift of encouragement. She didn't exercise it that night. But can you see the wisdom? Jesus, Jesus believes in taking care of the elderly. And then the morning passed, 12 noon came. At 12 noon, God pulled the blinds and shut the shutters over the sun, the moon, and the stars. And for three solid hours, the world hung there in blackest darkness. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Just before the lights came back on, at three o'clock, just a couple of minutes before. Jesus Christ was heard to cry out, my God, and by the way, notice he's not calling God Father now. He has become our sin. He has become separated from God on our behalf. Now he calls him my God. My God, my God, he said, why hast thou forsaken me? By the way, that word forsaken means disowned. God, in essence, had turned his back on his only begotten son. And he allowed his son to be made sin 
on your behalf to keep you out of hell and on my behalf. Too much for him to look on. So he turned his back and drowned the world in darkness so man wouldn't look on it either. My God! My God, why? Why? Hast thou forsaken me? He didn't ask that because he wanted an education. He asked that for your information and for mine. God had disowned his only begotten son on your behalf and mine. A young lady has a baby, maybe in the hospital. For some reason, she doesn't feel that she can raise that child. And, and at least not doing justice. So she takes that baby when she's out of the hospital, wraps him up in a nice, soft, furry blanket, lays him in a basket on top of another folded blanket, covers him up with a third blanket, pins a note to that top blanket, takes that baby carefully to the house of one whom she believes will give that child a good life. She lays that baby in the basket on the doorstep. She rings the doorbell and she runs and hides in the alley. And she watches to make sure that somebody's home. And that couple comes to the door, finds the baby, looks around, sees nobody, takes the baby in. And that mama turns around and walks away in hopes that that child might receive a better life than what she could provide for it. Now I say to you that 2,000 years ago, God took his son. He wrapped him up, not in a nice blanket, in grave clothes, swaddling clothes. And he laid him not in a basket, not on somebody's doorstep. In a sheep, dog, infested uh, manger. In a cave, if you please, in an inn. And he turned around. And by the way, not in the hopes that he'd have a better life, but in the hopes that you and I might have one. Amen. Turned around and walked away. He disowned disowned his son, his only begotten son on your behalf and mine. How in the world, if there's one ounce of humanity left in any of us, can we help but love him with all of our hearts? Amen. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ came all the way from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a lowly peasant woman in Nazareth. In infancy, he frightened a king. In boyhood, he confounded scholars. In manhood, he ruled nature. In death, he conquered sin. In resurrection, he conquered death. He is the rock of geology. He is the star of astronomy. He is the lamb of zoology. He's the Lord of history. Amen. And he's the God of the universe. Amen. God took his only begotten son and gave him up and 
walked away in essence. I don't know how else to put it. And Jesus, recognizing the distance between him and his father at that time, said, Father, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the lights came back on. It's after three now. Placed on the cross at nine is after three. Sometime during the next hour, hour and a half, Jesus cried out in agony two words. I thirst. I thirst. His lips were broken and cracked and bleeding. His tongue was bleeding and swollen. His throat was parched, sore. Just to get a breath, he had to try to lift himself up on the cross, take a breath, and then slouch back down again. And he cries out for a little bit of relief. Hi, thirst! Can you imagine? Here's the one who created water. Now he's saying, I'm thirsty. Here's the one who, Isaiah 40 says, holds all the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand. I thirst. Here's the one who told the woman at the well, that woman of ill repute, lady, if you'll switch wells, drink out of mine, you'll never thirst again. Now he cries out, I'm thirsty. Here's the one who on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Now he cries out from the depths of his soul, I thirst. Here's the one who in the very last invitation in the Bible, Revelation 22, 17, said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And now he's crying out, I'm thirsty. Well, I would never try to minimize the physical sufferings of our Lord, but I'm convinced it goes far beyond the physical sufferings. He was thirsty also to be back in fellowship with his father. John 17 and verse 5, just the day before, Jesus prayed this. He He prayed, Father... Glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And he wants that back now. He's thirsty for the fellowship of his father. But I'm convinced that he's also thirsty for sinners to take a gander at the cross. Kneel and be saved. That's right. If there's anything at all, the Bible often talks about the burden of the Lord. If there's anything at all that burdens the heart of God, that's your eternal destiny. He wants you to turn to him and be saved. He's thirsty for your salvation. And then shortly thereafter, still, not long after 3 o'clock, maybe 3.30, close to 4, I don't know, he cried out, One word in his language, three words in our language. In our language, he cried out, It is finished! In his language, that would be one word. Tetelestai! 
I like to do word studies, and I looked up that word, did a pretty thorough word study on that word, tetelestai. I find out that number one, it's a banking term. And it literally in the banking industry means the books are balanced. Put that in your smoke and pipe it. It's as though God had a book. I mean, the record books. On this page, that's Jesus' page. And there's nothing but righteousness on that page. On this page is my page and your page. And there's nothing but sin on that page. God looked down and God took all of the sin of my page, put it on Jesus' page. And he took all of the righteousness off of Jesus' page and he put it on my page. And then he said, books are balanced. Tetelestai! We can go home. But Tetelestai is also a legal term. You know, nowadays, if you're put in jail for whatever reason and you, 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 know, you, you pay your sentence, your debt to society, and then they let you out. Maybe early, maybe not, but they let you out. When, when you get out, you know, if you're in, in a certain community, why, they might put it in the paper that you're out of jail now. They put it in when you go in. But in Bible times, they didn't do that. In the first place, in Bible times, there, there was no plea bargaining. Amen. There was no getting off for early behavior, for good behavior. You paid every moment, every day, every hour of your sentence. However, when you get out of prison, back in that day, they didn't put anything in newspapers or show it on CNN. I said CNN. I said CNN. They didn't, and they didn't put it on any news outlet, Fox and Elba. And you might be walking down the street. Somebody recognize you. And think that maybe you broke out. They would call the authorities. They'd come and arrest you and take you off to jail. So what the governor would do back in New Testament times, in that part of the world is he would, it was on a big piece of papyrus. And he'd, 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 it was, um, it was, it was a, a statement that your, your sentence has been paid in full. In fact, across that page was stamped the word tetelestai. And then you'd fold that up and put it in your pocket. If you're walking down the street and somebody recognizes you, might have thought you broke out of jail, might grab you and call the authorities. All you had to do was pull that paper out and show them. Tetelestai paid in full. May I submit to you that if you happen to be one of those unfortunate souls that watches religious television, Benighted, blinded, unfortunate souls. I hope you're not. But if you are, and one of them comes over the air and says, there you see, you sinned. You lost it. Now you're going to go to hell. Just pull out the document. Wave it in front of the screen and cry out, Tetelestai. Pay it in full. If the devil comes to you with a doubt sometimes, Pull out the document. Wave it in front of his ugly face. And tell him.
him to tell us die. It is finished. Was his cry. It's also a legal term. And then the Bible says, preacher, I lost my page. There we go. My marker fell out. His last statement took place, no doubt, after three, because it's light again, and they've been through these other two statements. And he prays one more prayer. And in this prayer, he calls God Father. He's back in fellowship with God now. And he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then the Bible says he bowed his head. Doesn't say his head dropped. Yep. Says he bowed his head. That takes an act of the will. He knew that every prophecy was been, had been fulfilled now. Ninety-two plus Old Testament prophecies of his first coming containing over 360 details. Everyone is now fulfilled. Jesus knows that and he cries, Father, into thy hands I'm coming home. I commit my spirit. And he bows his head and gives up the ghost. Now you and I know the rest of the story, don't we? That's what Resurrection Sunday is all about. And by the way, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday for the Christian. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When he comes our glorious King. All his ransomed home to bring. Then anew in, in heaven we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Listen to me carefully and I'm finished. Nobody will ever know. Nobody will ever know how much Jesus suffered except those who go to hell. That's right. I'll say that again. Nobody will ever know how much Jesus suffered except those who go to hell. That's your question. I, I know I'm at a good, strong, fundamental Bible-believing church. I'm at Sunday night. I understand that. But I need to ask you a question. I, 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 I have a hard time fathoming a crowd this size with maybe somebody in it not settled on their salvation. That's right. Listen to me carefully. How many in this room can honestly say, honestly, Preacher, I'm 100% sure. Don't raise your hand. Don't stand up and shout. 100% sure, not 95% sure, 100% sure. For a Bible reason, if I were to drop dead right now, I'd go to heaven, I'm saved, and I know it. May I say, neighbor, if you cannot say a resounding yes, that's me. To that question, I have one piece of advice for you. Run. Get up out of your seat and run yes. to Calvary. Amen. You don't know how much time you've got left. Amen. Christian, do you love him? 
When was the last time you spent more than just six word sentence telling him so? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed, no one looking. I'll ask the pianist if she'll come wherever you are and, and uh, have ready the invitation song uh, of your choice. Uh, don't play it until I give a signal like this for you to play the song. How many in this room with heads bowed and eyes closed can honestly say, Preacher, that's me. I am 100% sure for a Bible reason that heaven is my home. I'm saved and I know it. If you could say yes to that, just between you, me, and the Lord, would you lift your hand all the way up in the air? Keep it up. Don't put it down. Preacher, I'm 100% sure that I'm saved and on my way to heaven. God bless you. What a wonderful sight. Thank you. Put your hands down. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. No one is looking. I was pastoring Victory Baptist Church in Lafayette, Georgia. When my wife, a soul winner, a student of the word, a prayer warrior, a Sunday school teacher, had been a successful bus route captain, nursery director, counselor, came running down the aisle crying out, I'm not saved. She gave her heart to Jesus. I was the pastor. She was the pastor's wife. So it's very possible there's somebody like that in this crowd in that condition. Is there one here tonight who would say, Preacher, I could not, did not, or should not have raised my hand. I'm not 100% sure that I'm saved and on my way to heaven, but Preacher, I would like to be. Would you pray for me that I'll get it settled before it's too late? If that's you, would you lift your hand up? God bless you. Thank you. Is there another? Thank you. God bless you, young fellow. Is there another? God bless you, sir. I'm not 100% sure that heaven's my home, that Jesus Christ is my Savior. But if he's done that for me, and we haven't touched the hem of the garment, if he's done that for me, I'd sure like to get it settled. Preacher, pray for me also. Let me see your hand quickly. I'm going to pray in a moment. God bless you. Is there another? God bless you, honey. Is there another? Heavenly Father, as I've promised, I pray for these who raised their hand indicating in all sincerity, I'm just not 100% sure that heaven is my home, but I would like to be. Pray for me. And I, I, I believe they were sincere. So I'm asking you, oh God, at this moment to help them to realize that we're all sinners. Amen. Help them to understand that the only payment for sin is eternal separation from you and a place the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire. And I pray that you'd help them to realize, Lord Jesus, that when you died on the cross 2,000 years ago and rose from the dead, you paid that sin debt off for them. And I pray that you'd help them, even at this moment, once and for all, by simple childlike faith, to open the heart and receive you as personal Savior. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody looking. I don't know how you usually do it. I'm going to ask the pastor if he'll come and just stand down here in the front somewhere, Brother Kelly, if you would, please, sir. If you raised your hand at the moment, we're going to stand out, pray another brief prayer, and we'll have some music. You'll probably see some folks come forward and kneel at the altar, maybe just to pray. If you raised your hand indicating, I'm not sure that I'm saved, but I'd like to be. I'm going to ask you if you meant it, if you were sincere about that. 
on the very first note of music, leave your place. Step out into the aisle, come down to the front, just go straight to the pastor. Don't go to the altar by yourself. Go to the pastor and tell him. Well, you won't have to tell him anything. You go to him, he'll know why. Let him open a Bible. Take a few minutes of your time to share with you how to be 100% sure. Pray with you and help you to get it nailed down. Please, I beg you, please, please don't put it off. It'll never be easier to be saved than it is right now. Every time you hear the gospel and have an invitation, you'll find it easier to say no and harder to say yes. You come. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. How many in this room would say, Preacher, I'm saved and I know it. And I raised my hand to testify of that, but Brother Tully, I need to fall deeper in love. I don't know how else to explain it with Jesus Christ. I need to love him more. I need to express it to him more. And preacher, I'm, uh, I'm confessing that as sin on my part. And preacher, I, I'm willing to promise God right now that if he'll help me, if he'll give me the capacity, I'll do my best to love him with all of my heart and all of my soul. If you're willing to make a promise similar to that to God all over the house, signify that promise by your uplifted hand. All over the house, just lift your hand and put it back down again. God bless you. God bless you. Let's all stand for a prayer, please. Everyone standing. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Heavenly Father, I don't know what else to say. I've done the best I know how. And I pray, oh God, that you'd first of all speak to the hearts of those who raised their hand indicating they're not sure that they're saved. And I pray that you'd give them the courage on the first note of invitation not to wait, to step into the aisle, come down to the front, come up to the pastor so we can show them how to be saved and, and uh, how to get it nailed down and pray with them about that issue. Then, Father, I pray for these who raised their hand with me indicating a promise that we're making to you. And I pray, oh God, that you'd help those who were sincere about that promise to solidify that promise. With heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking. In a moment, I'm going to point to the piano. What I do is going to begin playing. If you raised your hand indicating I'm not sure I'm saved, don't put it off. You'll be the first one down the aisle. Come to the pastor. He stands there in the front waiting for you. Let him pray with you about that help you about that matter of your salvation. Please, I beg you, I beg you. It's too important. We're talking about heaven and hell and your never dying soul. Don't put it off. You come and let him help you with that. If you raised your hand indicating I'm saved, but you're making a promise to God about your love life with him. If you were sincere about that promise, now if you weren't, stay where you are. But if you were sincere, I'm going to ask you on the first note, leave your place, come and find a place at the altar. And up here, you tell God in your own words what you told him back there by the raising of your hand. If you'll do that, I give you my promise it'll help you to solidify that vow. So as soon as the music begins, you come quickly. From all over the house while they pray, just come quickly. If you're coming because you're not saved or not sure that you're saved, I beg you, don't go to the altar by yourself. Come and see the pastor. He stands over here in the front just a little bit to my right. You might be a member of this church. He'll rejoice. He won't embarrass you or berate you. He'll rejoice with you.
young people. Raise the hand saying, I'm not sure. Hallelujah. If you're not sure, my advice is don't go to the altar by yourself. Let us help you. Pastor is praying with one now. You stop. When you come down to the front, just look at me. We'll come down and help you. You come while they sing and play. Are there others that need to come? Don't put it off. Are there others? Quickly. Millions have come. There's still room for one. Most important thing you'll do in life is get your own salvation settled. I don't know. I don't know your heart. God does. You might to a degree. Jesus said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. You come to Him sincerely in faith, trust to Him. He won't turn you away. From that point on, He'll never turn you away. If, you need to, if you're not sure you're saved, you come. Other others. God bless you. Are there others? Many have come. Many are praying. Many are still praying. Invitation is still open. they play the next verse very quietly and softly. Listen to me carefully. If you're not saved, one of three things could happen at any moment to forever stop you from ever having another opportunity to be saved. Number one, physical death. No chance. No second chance after death. Put another man wants to die and after this the judgment. Number two, Jesus is coming. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10, 11, and 12 inform us that if you've heard the gospel on this side of the rapture, Jesus comes for his church. We're out of here that if you've heard and understood the gospel, that will forever shut the door for you to have another opportunity. Preacher, I thought you could be saved anytime you want to. Well, you can, but you'll only have the want to when the Holy Spirit gives it to you. 
However, my loved ones are gone. I don't know where they're gone. And I, no, you won't. The Bible says in that passage, God will send you strong confusion, delusion, so that you'll believe the lie of the Antichrist about where the rest of us went. We'll put it off. And then thirdly, this might be, I don't know, I'm not God, I can't tell, but this could be very well. Last time God will ever speak to you about right. it. Amen. Spoken to you about it over and over again. He might, you won't hear it audibly, but he might say in your heart, all right, if you don't want it, go ahead and go to hell. I'll never bother you about this again. And from that moment on, he'll walk away. And you'll never have a desire or an inclination to be saved after that. Too late. Cross the deadline. So I beg you, I beg you, don't put it off. Come get it settled. I don't know your heart. I don't know how many, if any, unsaved people attend your Sunday night service. All I know is you have an eternal soul. You are an eternal soul. There's a heaven for the saved and a hell for the lost. Jesus is coming soon. And soon it'll be too late. Why don't you sing? Can we sing one more verse of that song? If no one else comes, we'll prepare to turn it back over to Pastor. He's praying with someone right now. You need to come, you come.